Welcome to Beyond the Pink Cloud, the podcast where we talk about moving forward in our lives through recovery and navigating the world with grace, ease, and humor. We've got tools and strategies from the experts to help you live with less stress and increased ease. Let's get into today's episode. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Beyond the Pink Cloud. This is your host, Dr. Alice Kirby. Today I have with me Judy Lemon, and Judy is a shamanic practitioner and somatic experiencing trauma therapist who brings years of comprehensive training and knowledge into her work. She has studied and apprenticed with Native and other master teachers in Europe, the United States, and throughout Latin America. Judy draws upon her extensive experience with multiple modalities such as energy healing, ceremonial work, and trauma therapy to create an individual plan for each client's healing and spiritual development. She has just published her first work, a short story called The Magic Tree, which is part of the anthology Crappy Too Happy. A full-length memoir called Machete Woman about her days as a shamanic apprentice will be published soon. Judy, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Alice. It's always good to be here. (laughs) (laughs) It is, isn't it? Yes. (laughs) Um, So I have so many things that I want to ask you about. I love that you do a combination of shamanic work and of somatic experiencing, which is most of my listeners know is is one of my great loves is the SE work. But maybe maybe you could tell us a little bit about um, the, the book first and the story that you published in the Crappy to Happy book and a little bit about that project. Sure. Yeah, so um, here's the book, uh, Crappy to Happy, with the bright red umbrella on it. And um, it's called Sacred Stories of Transformational Joy, uh, Crappy to Happy, True Stories of Grit, Grace, and Love. And there are about 30 uh, of us who contributed to this. And the main task we were given was, how did you get through the crappy situation and come out well on the other side. Uh, It sounds like uh, something simple, but we wanted to present it in a a bright light. It's not that, hey, I survived this awful experience, but I survived it, I'm still standing, and not only that, I'm dancing and singing along with the universe as well. And it's like, if I can do this, what an inspiration. Um, I've been reading through it myself, and I'm just amazed at people's stories. The things that we humans go through and the strength of our spirit, um, I think we can do a lot more than we give ourselves credit for. Yeah, I, f- I fully agree with you. And I love the take on the on the whole book and the project of it's not just that I've you know, dug my way through the mud and crawled out and now I'm stronger, but it's like now I'm actually can be thriving and joyful and, you know, cheerful and enjoy my life. And it doesn't have to just be that I, I went through something really hard, but it's almost like that, that scene of a, a flower blossoming up through the concrete or surviving a long winter or something like that, poking up from the snow, or then we have this brightness and life and light. It's lovely. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's not just a why is this happening to me? Yeah. Well, it did. And I survived and I'm doing good. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, it speaks a little bit about the quality of resilience too, within our systems. 
yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as a person who's studying SE, you know about the human nervous system and, uh, you know, the, the resources that we look for. I think uh, a lot of the stories in this book uh, can relate to things like that. That there are indeed positive things that we can draw on for our own self-growth and healing. Definitely. And, and I think even having that approach as we're in the difficult time too, to know that, okay, this might be a difficult situation, but also I have resources I can draw on and to have that awareness and knowledge around even the concept of resourcing, as well as identifying in our own bodies or in our own environment, like what some resources are for us. I think that's always a good, a good practice when we talk about resilience, where it's not just resilience when something hard happens, but how do we build resilience into our, our daily lives? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, that sounds like a really great pr uh, project. I love the title. And for those of you just listening on the audio, Judy was holding, holding up the book and there is this bright red umbrella and it's, you know, crappy to happy. It's, it's a pretty fun title. So definitely check that out. And um, like I said, Judy, I'm, I'm really just intrigued by your work with the combination of shamanism and somatic experiencing. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your own story and what guided you on this path of of combining both of them and being intrigued by, by both of these modalities or platforms? The story in a nutshell, uh, the longer version will be in the book Machete Woman, but uh, that book is already about five, uh, 425 pages. So wow. uh, it, yeah, it, it spans a few years. Um, I guess I've always been one of those who feel that there is more to life than what meets the eye. I grew up in a very practical family. You know, the universe is what you can feel with your hands or see with your general five senses. But I had experiences when I was younger that led me to believe that there was more there. Um, it really wasn't until I moved to London in uh, the mid 80s to try to pursue a career as a rock star that I actually got the magical training online. So uh, in between uh, auditions and trying to find musical projects, uh, I would take classes either on meditation and um, during one class on ceremonial magic, somebody came in and he says, oh, I've just been to the jungle on this plant spirit medicine retreat. And I did this ayahuasca and it was amazing. And I had no idea what he was talking about. I'd never heard of shamanism, what's a shaman, what's this Aya thing. But at the moment that he said that, something kind of went into my heart and just said, don't worry about this right now, save it for later. And I always trust that inner guidance. That's something that's very always been very strong in me. So long story short, I ended up moving back here to the United States. And uh, as soon as I did, then my guiding voice says, I know you're going to go on a plant spirit medicine retreat to the jungle too. And I was like, oh, I am, huh? Hmm. No idea what I was going to get into. But in that retreat, I met my first teacher, Javier, and he took me on as his apprentice. Uh, and again, I did not go looking for it. I had no idea how difficult the apprenticeship would be. Um, 
it was we were we were not in a jungle lodge we were living in the jungle itself and we were living with the tribal people like the shuar hebrew uh you know some of the others and a lot of what the apprenticeship does in addition to learning how to make plant medicines um and work with people because if you remember like the uh healers in places the remote places they're the village doctors um and on many of the places that we were at there are no medical medical facilities at all so people would come to one of my teachers and maybe they have diabetes uh, lots of times women need help in childbirth so the the healer would be the one to act as the doctor so um let's see a lot of what the apprenticeship is is also developing your own abilities and your own uh connection with spirit guides because in order to do this kind of work traditionally you need to have divine guidance divine help you know some of the things that have been presented to me over the years there's absolutely no way that my logical mind would know what to do with that you know i would be standing in front of somebody going like what what is it but then when you learn to get out of the way and you call in your spirit crew they're like move on over we got this and you feel yourself rolling your sleeves up and all of a sudden you know you're doing things you're shifting energy sometimes i just watch myself without question and i'm like wow this is interesting and then afterwards you get the feedback and they say why oh how did you know to put your hand there well the action is is like my mind my mind didn't know but i allowed my hand to be placed there by those who do know so um i think as i just got more and more experiences in the the field of shamanism um i just dove in deeper and deeper because it just fascinates me what you can do with it and then um with regard to the somatic experiencing um i can't remember if i had told you about that in our call how i found it you want to talk about spirit guided i had never heard of somatic experiencing but there i am deep in the brazilian jungle a few some years ago by myself in this house and i hear this voice that says look up on the shelf just underneath the roof so oh yeah i didn't even notice that because it was very high up and there was the book waking the tiger by dr peter levine uh it was the only book in english in the house uh all moldy wet obviously had been up there but voice says take the book down have a look at it and i just started thumbing through the first few pages and i went i need to integrate this into my practice even though i hadn't started doing the training yet i knew for some reason that it would marry well with what i do with my shamanic work so over the past years that's what i've been doing um i have particular appointments where i can mix all the techniques but there it's a total channel appointment mm. so if somebody comes in with some trauma we'll likely start with some se to release some of that energy and then depending on what's happening we might go on a shamanic journey we might do some kind of healing maybe a bit more se needs to be done 
you know, there's no set pattern for it. It's just whatever is right on the day. And it's, it's very powerful. Wow. Um, that's such a neat marriage. And I've had a few other SE practitioners on the podcast and I love with SE how there are so many different avenues that the work can be explored, um, you know, with, in the realm of psychotherapy or, yeah. or body work, or in, the, in your case, shamanism. And thank you so much for sharing that, that bit of your story. It's definitely fascinating. And I'm curious, like, how were you received as a, as a white woman coming down into the jungle and studying with, um, with these indigenous practitioners? Well, it's kind of funny, actually, because um, during the first apprenticeship part, yeah, there was me. And, you know, let's just say I'm not exactly 20 anymore. In the jungle traditions, in general, most of the men, I'm not, I don't want to use the word shaman because that has become so grossly overused. And it's also from a particular region of Siberia. The real medicine people of the jungle tend to use their more local names, like could be ayahuasquero, uh, the blanket term is called vegetalista, but I'll just call them uh, healers for the sake or medicine people for the sake of this podcast. So yeah, there's me, not exactly 21. So yeah, oh, like I started to say, the when the medicine people take apprentices, they're there are most of them are male. Women tend to get pregnant very early on, and they, you know, the mothers are taking care of the kids. And it's very difficult for them to go out in the jungle to do the training for long periods of time if they have little kids. So generally, you're going to have a male uh, healer and a bunch of young men apprentices. So right away, here comes me, an older white woman, and my Spanish is pretty good, you know, not perfect, but it's pretty good enough to survive in that situation. Um, there was my teacher, who is a Quechua native from the Rio Napo area, which is my lineage now, and then his nephew, uh, who helped carry our stuff, and then we would go in, and we would be staying with uh, like some of the uh, the chiefs and the villagers, like the first place we stayed with the Hebrew. And they were very amazed that I was willing to, you know, sit on the ground, eat with my hands, uh, and just go through the, the discomforts. And, and I would laugh and I would say, well, yeah, I could do with some nice white sheets and like, where's the air conditioning and stuff. But, um, you know, basically keeping a good sense of humor. But, you know, what was kind of funny is in the jungle, it's a very steamy area in more ways than one, than the humidity. And they treat sex, I don't want this to sound bad, but almost kind of like animals in that they just answer the natural urge. You know, there's no prudishness. They're definitely, or at least the ones that I work with were very polyamorous you know, this man might have three wives and this lady could have a couple of husbands and this one's having kids over here, but they all know about it. They all know about it and they're very outspoken about it. So I think there were lots of times they were trying to make me blush. Hmm. And uh, it was kind of funny because, you know, I grew up in the sex and drugs and rock and roll era, you know, and having been a professional musician for a long time, 
not a whole lot surprises me and I can give it back to him. But I remember one day my teacher was, uh, I think he was trying to intimidate me again. And he's like, you must be very careful, Judita. These jungle men, they will carry you off into the bushes for <laughs> sex. And I think he thought that I was going to be like all, oh no, oh no. But instead I started laughing because there was me and I would look, I'm looking at these gorgeous men with this beautiful skin and these rippling muscles, you know. You're like, okay. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like, hey, you want to bungle in the jungle? That's all right by me, baby. <laughs> so there's my teacher and I'm laughing and, and he's like, what are you laughing at, Judita? And I said, oh, Javier, you have no idea who I am. So I just told him a little bit of, you know, about like the, the music business and stuff. I think his eyes got really, really big. And they're like, where did I get this one from? <laughs> but it helped. You know, it really helped also because there were other times too, like there was one night when we were in my teacher's village and this was a really, really remote place. Um, and we were sitting out with the, the village fishermen and we were passing around this bottle of aguardiente with some kind of a being in it. I, I can't remember what it was, you know, something like a lizard or something to make them potent. And um, the fact that I was sitting there knocking back the bottle with them, I was able to talk to them about their culture and they were very open. And that was a night I was asking them if they'd ever seen mermaids. Wow. What'd they say? Yeah. They, dead serious. Uh, you know, uh, the, the Amazon is full of amazing, very rich legends of which mermaids, or sirenas, as sirenas. they call them, um, they're, they're a real part of their life there. So all of the fishermen were very dead serious. You know, even though we'd had a little bit of this at Aguardiente, they were, they got very serious and they would each tell me their story about, you know, how they'd seen this one in the river and this other one cast a spell on him. And it was wonderful to hear that because it wasn't just wishful thinking, you know, in their land, these beings are real, therefore they do exist. Hmm. You know, and, and for, yeah, for me to be able to sit there, watch the moon rise and be a part of that. I mean, even to this day, I'm still very humbled by that experience. Yeah, I'm, I'm so curious. What were the, what was the general feel as they talked about the mermaids? I, like, were they are they friendly creatures or um, I know you said that the men speaking got very serious, but I'm curious if they all if there was a thread of similarity in the, the feel around their stories. The general feeling that I get from them is they're enchantresses. Mm. As you know, you hear the Lorelei luring the men onto the rocks. And then even my teacher told me a story of how he was out in a canoe one day and he saw this beautiful woman. Uh, you know, and of course, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, this naked woman, blah, 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 blah. You know, and of course, he's going to be interested in that. But he said when she turned and looked at him, he kind of felt something energetic and then she disappeared under the water and he realized that he was seeing a Serena 
and then he became enchanted. I guess she did something to him. Um, but he said he became so obsessed that like he couldn't function and he almost got like a zomb got to be like a zombie. And then finally, you know, people in the village were realizing, oh, you know, and they, they managed to find out, oh, he went down to the river and he saw Serena. Oh my goodness, he's under enchantment. We must break the spell. So they called in another medicine man and they broke the spell and, you know, and it's all very real to them. I mean, I, I because of the training and the amount of time that I got to live with them and all the years that I've been continuing to go back, it's not just fairy tales, you know, it's real to them. So, you know, who, who am I to say that it's not? Yeah, exactly. Like, who are we to tell someone else their perception of reality isn't real because it's not the same perception of reality that I have, especially yeah. when it's these deep cultural and in such a completely different lifestyle, like living in the jungle with, with just so vastly different than how we live here. Yeah. You know, it's like maybe to them an, an iPhone doesn't seem real. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think now there are so many people going down there with electronics. And of course, the, the younger generation, they want those things too. Um, and believe it or not, um, they all do have cell phones. Um, they're not all of them are iPhone quality. Like for example, the, the, the man that I've been working with more recently, Luis, uh, just a flip phone. You know, he doesn't know how to text or anything tricky, but he says, this is how we find each other in the jungle now. Mm. We all have our cell phones and it's much easier when, when we, obviously, if they have a signal, obviously, if they're in the very deep jungle, they have to result to using the, the vocal calls. You know, you hear people like going, woo, almost like an owl. And then somebody answers back like an echo oh. and then you can echolocate each other. Mm-hmm. I like um, I like to establish a secret signal like that, especially in my younger days when I would go to big concerts and things with whatever group of friends we had. I'm like, we need a signal. And my yeah. partner and I now will call to each other. It probably drives the neighbors crazy whenever one of us is coming home. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting that technology is is infiltrating into the culture down there. Um, but it doesn't sound like it's infiltrating it or maybe infiltrating isn't the right word, maybe just being present um, and not necessarily like taking over the way that it it's so prevalent here. Oh, uh, you know, I think a lot of it's the cost, but also a good lot of it is that there's no electricity in most of the places. Now there some are now getting generators and solar panels so they're able to maybe run a generator for a few hours in the day which is kind of helpful because a lot of the time i've spent there we didn't have electricity i got used to that you know because it was the the idea when we do our training is that we become one with the jungle so that doesn't mean turning on an electric light or you know list, watching movies on your phone or something like that instead listen to what's going on around you you know do you hear something 
crawling through the bushes. Well, maybe you need to be alert and get your machete out because, you know, maybe the Yana Puma is coming to have a little bite. Hmm. God, that's terrifying. Um, something else that struck me when you were telling your story, um, Judy, is this, you said that you've always been able to really like hear this in inner voice that you have. And it sounds like that's something that you've had your whole life. Did you, did you know that like as a young child or is that something that you cultivated more as an adult? And then I'm curious about how that's shifted or deepened for you as you've studied the shamanic practices, as you've studied SE and, uh, and also some, maybe some ways for people listening that maybe they're interested in cultivating more of, of a relationship with their own intuition, some ways that you would recommend um, practicing that or developing that sense. Absolutely. Um, I think as a child, I knew there was something communicating with me because little kids don't tend to question things like that. You know, how many little kids have imaginary friends or, you know, like, oh, my friend here, which the adult can't see, is telling me this thing. But it wasn't until I learned to meditate in the early uh, 1990s where that became very clear. You know, once I started learning how to purposely quiet the mind, all of a sudden, I guess the, it was a voice of my higher self started coming through quite loudly. And at first I thought like, oh my goodness, like what's this? Like what am I in contact with? And then I, I talked to my teacher and she says, oh, it sounds like you've connected with your higher self now. And I went, oh. So then that was just fascinating to me. I have then been working more and more to open it more. And a good lot of my clientele wants that same thing. I want to know my spirit guide. I want to be able to hear that voice. I want to be able to trust my intuition. It's available to everybody. It, it's not just available to somebody who's done 50 years of meditating up on a mountainside. It's, it's a human right. You know, it's something that we have. A lot of times when I talk to people, their first thing is like, well, I think I got something, but I'm pretty sure I'm making it up. Mm. You know, I was like that too. You know, you might do a meditation, you might do a shamanic journey or something, and something comes in. But this is why we say, grab your journal and write down that first thing that came in, even if it seems really bizarre, because at some point you will realize that that's what the truth is. Because the problem is, is if you wait too long, it filters through this brain and the brain tries to make sense of it. So you could be, you could get some information that at that moment doesn't make sense to you, but your brain's going, no, that's a bunch of crap. That cannot possibly be true. And then it twists it into something else and you've lost it. So one of the things that I have found very helpful integrating SE with this is, you know, when we work to, with people and say, well, let's, let's have a look inside. Let's do a little bit of body scanning and see what wants to come out. In these cases, what I'm doing with them is I'm having them answer the questions is this a yes or is this a no? So we'll just start with some very simple things because one of the things like when people want to work with spirits 
or I want to know my guides and stuff. The big thing is, is you have to learn about psychic protection because there's a lot more out there than just your guides, but you also have to learn uh, what does your guide feel like? You know, what do other spirits feel like? And your body will tell you that, you know, just like in SE, your body tells you something you need to pay attention to. You know, for example, if I use myself, let's just say I'm feeling a presence over here and I tap into it. And I'm like, oh, is that something I want to connect with? If I feel kind of like a, ah, or like a, a release, that to me is my yes. Mm-hmm. But if that's not something that I want to be dealing with and I need to put my shields up, my gut starts activating. And it's like this, I, I use this alarm noise, like a ring, 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 shields up, Scotty, you know. <laughs> but it's so prevalent. And then I have two main guides who are with me all the time. And when they come in, I definitely feel them in particular parts of my body. So I'm thinking like, oh, hey guys, I know you're here. So this is what a lot of the work that I do with people because everybody's different. Your way of recognizing a yes or a no will not necessarily be the same as mine. And it's not generally something that happens overnight either. Right. Uh, uh, the biggest thing is you need to learn to trust what comes in. You know, just I, I have all my people take uh, do journaling. You know, you don't have to write a whole book, but when you get something, just pop down a few notes. Because what's going to happen over the weeks and the months, you're going to start seeing patterns. And then you're going to maybe, hey, look, there's this message that I got there. Huh, that's odd. There it is again. There it is in another form. And then once you start learning to connect the dots, it's almost like the conduit opens a little bit more. That makes sense. And again, you touched on so many wonderful things. I love the I love the practice of trusting and knowing what your yes and your no are. And I think this is something that I work with as well. And it's so important for us to cultivate because it helps us to, even if we're, you know, whether we're connecting with our guides or whether we're just going through our day, deciding if we want to interact with another human or we want to buy a sandwich for lunch or a salad, even little small things like that, I think are really Mm -hmm. wonderful opportunities to start noticing, is this a yes for me? If it is like, how do I know it's a yes? What's happening? Um, you know, how am I standing to explore this? Yes. It's, I think that's just, it's incredibly important so that we begin to trust ourselves and we begin moving through the world, making choices that support us and that feel like us. So I love that you brought that up. And, and then also the part about the psychic channels and having some psychic protection. Uh, and I know when we chatted a few weeks ago, we talked a little bit about, um, when, when these psychic channels first can become open for people and sometimes through traumatic events or stressful events, the sort of the the gateways can be, you know, sprung open way too fast and people can become flooded. So that can be very overwhelming. Um, What are some ways that you've been able to stay very grounded, like within the shamanic realm and working with some of these psychic energies or, or again, ways that you would recommend for other people to, to stay grounded in exploring this work? What you're talking about being grounded is really important. Um, because I've been doing this work for many years, obviously 
I am involved with a lot of different communities and other people who do their own versions of it. And it's a bit dis disconcerting at times when I hear people saying things like, oh, we don't need to worry about like the physical stuff because it's all up here, like all the angels and all this like la 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 energy, butterflies and unicorns, and they're not grounded. Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's somebody who does a lot of plant medicine, for example, like, oh, yes, you know, I did hape three times a day for the last five months, and they're all over the place. The, the thing with grounding is we are inherently large spiritual presences who have taken on this physical form in this incarnation. So you hear about the duality, you know, the spirit and the physical in order to do the strongest spiritual or energetic work you've got to be grounded within the physical body because it's it's almost like at times picture yourself like being at the beach and here comes a big wave uh, i know it there are times when i have channeled some pretty big presences where like i feel like my conduits really being stretched you know at those times i will literally plug my feet into the ground, which is always a good, anybody can do this. You know, the old, put those roots into the ground or pretend that you're like an ancient boulder or whatever, something in, in, that, that can't be moved by this force. So that way, you know, you can kind of stand there in your power and you can still deal with the energetics because some of the energetics can be really strong and you can always tell somebody who isn't grounded because they're, they're just, they're all over the place. You know, they, they don't make sense or lots of times like their lives are a disaster. Like, oh, I'm the greatest psychic channel in the world, but my marriage is falling apart. I can't make money, you know, like, oh, they're repossessing my car. The, mm -hmm. the, their physical lives are reflecting the lack of being grounded. So uh, as far as like, other people probably, as we know it, SE and breathing, the single biggest thing that can drop you into that grounding is a deep breath. That inhale and exhale, activating the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous systems. You know, when you can get into that state of relaxation and feel being in your body. Like when I'm working with somebody who's very out of body, you know, we're constantly, come on, back in your body, feel your body, you know, hello, you know, let's call Mary, back in your body, this is Mary's body, you know, and, you know, if you're feeling like that, like, feel the physical, uh, I have people go outside, I have a very nice yard, lots of times we'll go outside and we'll work with the plants, just something tactile, um, another way, I think, and we've talked with an SE is, um, movement yeah. uh moving around like using those great smovey rings those are very popular with a lot of the people that that i work with like wow i've never seen these things before and i said i haven't seen them before in my training either and i love them yeah. sometimes i take them out on a walk with me so i would say anything that makes you aware of your surroundings and your body is good for grounding and then obviously, if you're going to go on to be a shamanic practitioner, 
or a psychic or a medium, it's probably a good idea to get a little outside training to work with, with that on a deeper level. I would think that's uh, paramount to receive yeah. outside training, to start working with those energies. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I love everything you said about grounding. Cause I found, you know, throughout the course of my life, living in different spiritually minded communities and living, you know, in, in Hawaii and stuff, there is a lot of this kind of I'm so spiritual and I'm so open to everything else, but the, the grounding isn't there. And it's almost right. like there's a, a disconnect and almost a, like a, a derogatory stance towards being present in the physical body. I've run across that even in my work with people that are like, well, being in my body just really isn't that important because I'm a spiritual being. And, yeah. um, you know, the, the term spiritual bypassing comes to mind and thinking about that. And I, I think it's, it's almost, it's difficult to be in our body sometimes, particularly if there is trauma or there is fear around actually being in here and, and feeling things. So, you know, like with anything, you just try to pull people back in with a lot of love and, and solid yeah. techniques. And like, oh, you said all the tapping and the grounding and this is my body. I love all of that. And it's so important. Well, also too, you know, in terms of those who channel messages or are spiritual, whatever, the messages that come through are only as good as the quality of the conduit. So, you know, this is why, um, like many years ago when I was first starting ceremonial magic, there was a uh, well-respected magician called Israel Regardi, And in one of his books, he goes on to say, before you start doing this magic stuff, go get some psychotherapy. Mm. And at that point, I was like, what? Why would I need to go get psychotherapy to do magic? I totally get it now. I totally get it now because you need to make sure that you are operating, you know, with all the pistons firing um, and you don't want to be putting your stuff on people. You know, you have to recognize your own energetics. Um, and, you know, if you're channeling some spirit you don't want to like put your own stuff on it uh you don't want to be mixing it in i mean how many times might somebody go to oh i went to this psychic and they told me this and i asked the same question to this one over here and they told me this well and this one told me this how can they all be telling me something different and i said well it's the conduit that it comes through so that's very important. So it's all very well to be up here with the flying unicorns, but it's going to eventually affect the quality of your work because you're just going to get blown away with all the celestial winds. Yeah, I like that. Blown away with all the celestial winds. <laughs> yeah. When I feel like with the, the shamanism or my understanding is that the some of the traditions are like passed down. I think you mentioned this. There's like a, a, a lot of work with the ancestors. And I'm curious, like how that ties into, I guess I'm just curious as your thoughts on this with some of the, the multi-generational trauma work and really doing some of the healing with our ancestors. And a lot of this came up recently because of the um, Halloween and um, All Hallows Eve and the veils being thin. And it's the time to communicate with our ancestors who have passed. And I, I'm curious maybe about the integration of those two or just your thoughts on that or, or, or again, for anyone who, who is feeling this little bit of an ancestral pull or connection, ways that we can maybe be a little more aware of messages from our ancestors or, or honor them, things like that. You know, 
for the ones that we remember, you know, like my parents have been in spirit for seven years now, so they're still very much in my conscious memory. And this is how we would keep those ancestors alive. But I remember when I started my jungle training, my first teacher looked at me and he said, oh, like, how are you doing? And I was comfortable. And he goes, oh, you've been here before many times. This is where your ancestors are from. And I thought, well, how can that be? I wasn't born in Peru and like, well, maybe not in this lifetime. And so now I realized when I'm doing a lot of my work, I actually see a line, you know, there's like jungle ones and then there's my familial ones. So the ancestors aren't necessarily of your bloodline. They could be through your spiritual line as well. Um, what was this Tuesday? So a couple of days ago, uh, I did a sweat lodge with some friends of mine who uh, follow the Lakota tradition. And it was a, a sweat lodge to honor our ancestors. And we called them all in on one of the rounds. And all of a sudden, the, the lodge itself, which is pretty small, seemed to expand. And it, it, you could, I could see it like expand way beyond the physical. So we had like our physical lodge, but outside of it, there was like a spirit lodge and it was really crowded in there. It was amazing. Wow. So one of the things, particularly in shamanic work, I think once people start working on themselves, then lots of times ancestral things will present. I mean, this has been my experience in my work. I know sometimes people will come in with uh, generational traumas first, but I find particularly in, let's say, ceremonial work or whatever, somebody will, no, I'll use my own example. I'll use my own example. Many years ago, when I was in an ayahuasca ceremony, somebody else's remote, and I just could not stop vomiting, you know, three hours, four hours, five hours. Like I was on the ground. I mean, and I was so weak. And I said, Madre, spirit of the plant, um, what is this? This cannot possibly be all of my stuff. Like I've been working with you for all these years. How can this be mine? And she says, oh no, you're clearing your mother's uh, mater um, maternal lineage. And at that moment, I saw my mom her mom, you know, like when you look in a mirror and there's a mirror behind you and you see that like line, mm -hmm. it was like that. And I went, really? You can do that? And she goes, I can do anything. And I went, oh, oh okay. And she goes, can we continue now? And I went, yeah. And she goes, grab your bucket. <laughs> and I was so amazed that you could do that. And so I've since seen more of that. But usually what happens is the person has to do a good lot of their own work first in order to be able to hold the space that makes sense. for the ancestors to come in. Because, you know, it's particularly, um, I work with a lot of women who have been sexually abused. Lots of times their mothers and other women in their family line have also had this, and it just, it's a repeating pattern. So, you know, you talk about bringing in, in all of that trauma, that gets pretty heavy. Yes. Yeah. 
That's, I'm curious, did you notice anything different after that experience you had with clearing the, with all the vomiting and clearing your, your mother and your um, maternal lineage? Yes. Um, basically, what happened over time is my relationship with my mother got a lot better. Hmm. Uh, from my earliest memories, we were always at loggerheads. And, you know, I was able to shamanic work to get to the source of that and see where that started. But the biggest thing that let me know how the energetics between us changed was when my brother-in-law, who doesn't know anything about woo-woo work, you know, he's not religious. I mean, he has some beliefs, doesn't want to know. But um, when I was over there after a weekend and stuff, he says, I got to tell you something. I don't know what you do, and I don't want you to tell me because I don't want to know. But he says, I have to tell you that I have seen how your relationship with your mom has changed and how it's affected the entire family. Wow. And I think my jaw hit the ground. Yeah. You know, for somebody who is not spiritually aware uh, to see that and to be able to feel that. And I think in that moment, that's when my belief system just hit 101%. No more doubts. Okay, I can't fool myself anymore. This is real. So then when you have that belief and you're just going forward, the, the, the results that you can get could be really amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. Just, I mean, so much of it does come down to our belief. And, and sometimes that yes. those external validation moments like that really do help. And I know we shouldn't yes. rely only on external validation, but I think those are important benchmarks along the way. They are. Yeah. I, I think also when you're training to have the validation, um, it creates a positive loop. You know, right. like I know for myself, I might get a bit of information that comes in. And then if the brain comes in and starts going like, are you sure? That's a little bit weird. But then somebody says, hey, when you did this thing, how did you know that that's exactly what I needed? And then you, when you get more and more of that, you start feeling the right way in your body so that as you're getting this message in, you go, ah, this is the way I feel when I'm doing it through spirit, when I'm in the flow. And that's when you learn to trust it more. And then the conduit opens up more. And it's just like this positive thing that goes forward. Absolutely. And then you and spend more time in the flow. Yes, that's exactly it. It's just one little step, one little step. You know, quite often in the kind of work I do, people want, they want to have like this big boom right away. You know, they might come in here and they, they say like, oh, I want you to wave your wand and take this away and fix it. And most of the time, whether it's SE or any kind of other uh, mental health work or shamanic work, you don't fix it in one time there's a lot of things buried underneath all these layers. So, you know, we have to go in there and shake things up a little bit and get a little bit of feedback. How does that feel? And it's, you know, it's a long process. Definitely. I think the same could be said to make an analogy with body work too. If you've had knots in your shoulders for 20 yeah. years and you yeah. know, one, one massage isn't going to fix that. Yeah. 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 
Judy, it's been really lovely to speak with you. Um, thank you so much for sharing your stories. And, and I know I'm feeling a certain way in our conversation and I'm really enjoying it. I feel like quite expansive and just really interested. Um, before we wrap up, is there anything that you're currently working on that you'd like to share or where can the listeners find you? I'll, I'll make sure we put all of your, your links in the show notes. Um, but if there's anything that you have going on or, or any just anything else you'd like to say to make sure people hear from you? Yeah, um, I can be found at my website, which is just judylemon.com, J-U-D-Y-L-E-M-O-N.com. And uh, my Instagram is machetewoman. My Facebook is at machetewoman. Um, I think that's, uh, if you can dive into there, they can, they can find me through there. Uh, I do all sorts of things. I do like all sorts of teaching, shamanic development, and and uh, I've got all my listings for my offerings on my website. So, you know, I'd invite listeners to just hop on the website and see if there's something of interest and see what happens. Yeah, reach out to you that way. I love the machete woman. I, I just submitted a, a piece of writing to the Elephant Journal that's about like likening sobriety and getting sober to hacking your way through a dense jungle that's just feels dark and all encompassing with the machete and the handle being, you know, slippery and worn in your hand as you're just fight to clearing, fighting to clear the path. Oh, it just made me think of that. It's a great name. The reason I picked that was, I mean, number one, a machete is, is, a, is an essential piece of jungle equipment, not just for hacking your way through, but, the snakes that come after you, it's a lifesaver. But during my training, there would be lots of times when my own crap would come up and I'd get really frustrated. So I would go find a downed piece of wood and I would take my machete and I would just be like, whack, 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 you know, until like it was all out, you Mm -hmm. know. And then being a King Arthur fan too, sometimes I would hold the machete up and pretend it was like struck by lightning. Kind of a geek, (laughs) but... (laughs) But I I just figured, you know what? I'm machete woman. It's great. It sounds so strong. I think it suits you well. Yes, thank you. So so that book, I'm still doing a bit of editing on it, but that's the next thing that will be coming out. Exciting. Um, And I'm sure you'll have information on your website when that does come out. Yes, indeed. All right, Judy. Well, thank you so much. It's been a really, uh, just a wonderful time to to speak with you and to to hear you share. And um, Thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Thank you. Bye.